0: I'm Chris Cutler, this is Probes number six. In the last program, we looked at extensions and preparations of the piano. Although it's not officially a string instrument, the piano is not so unlike a harp or a guitar, or even a violin. Come to that, they're all essentially just different ways of stretching a string across a sound box. So it's hardly surprising that harps and guitars have been prepared in ways similar to pianos, using paper, crocodile clips, and clothes pegs. Here's the harpist Joanna Newsom with a simple strip of paper threaded between her strings. She's actually taking a strip of 20-pound paper and she is threading it through the strings of the harp. In a Blue Harp study recorded in 1991, Anne LeBaron uses a variety of preparations and extended techniques. Although the sounds and the playing are all natural, the piece itself was edited from recordings after the fact, so it wasn't actually performed this way, although by implication, with a couple of harpists, it could have been. Back to that strip of paper. Here's the guitarist and instrument inventor Bart Hopkins giving it a try. And here's a guitar, face down and horizontal, with heavy weights attached to the strings. He's using a steel bowl as a soundboard. The American guitarist Janet Fader was trained classically and found her way to preparation by chance and instinct. There's nothing gaudy here, just small modifications of timbre. On this piece she's using a brass bead threaded onto a string, some key rings and an alligator clip to effect subtle, rather intimate changes of colour. Elgart and Peter Yates, also from classical backgrounds, who've been working quietly on acoustic guitar preparations for nearly 40 years, and who wrote between them in 1990 a pamphlet called Prepared Guitar Techniques. This is Snack Shop from 1981. <laughs> Next is what guitarists call a middle bridge. That's when you slide a metal rod or a drumstick under the strings somewhere along the neck. In this example it's a zither that has the middle bridge inserted. And here is the German guitarist Hans Reichel, just two very brief extracts, the first using a six string guitar with extra frets, the second a cigar box almost certainly, and some other unidentified preparations. take a slight detour now although i plan to deal with electrification in a later program i do want to look at some electric guitar preparations here because by the 1960s the electric guitar had become to all intents and purposes a completely new instrument not just a louder guitar but like the theremin or the and martineau a piece of electronic equipment with a life and a language of its own Several new genres of music already lay in its past, and it was by this time to rock what the piano was to contemporary composition. And also these probes have far more to do with the history of mechanical preparation than they do with the very different narrative of electronic processing. The pathfinder beyond all others was Keith Rowe. Rowe was a jazz guitarist who trained as a visual artist, and who, inspired by the painter Jackson Pollock, decided very early in the 1960s to force himself to abandon conventional technique by laying his guitar flat on a table. From that position, he went on to explore and to invent an entirely new vocabulary for the instrument, which, amongst other things, included working with various cage-like preparations, which is to say, resting things on and attaching things to the strings of his now horizontal guitar. A couple of years later, the guitarist David Toop and the percussionist Paul Burwell were experimenting together with preparations and modifications to their respective instruments, inspired, Toop says, by the buzzing timbres of various African instruments. Taking his lead from Cage, Toop attached crocodile clips at calculated positions along his strings. This is a radio recording of Rain in the Face from 1973. It was Fred Frith, guitarist of the rock band Henry Cow, who took possibly the most influential step. His 1974 solo LP, Guitar Solos, was not only a catalogue of techniques and preparations, it also came as an aesthetic revelation. Rowe had remade the guitar as a source of noise, electronic disturbance, and difference, avoiding everything previously associated with the guitar. But Fred embraced the instrument in all its moods and guises, melodic harmonic, rhythmic, abstract, ugly, beautiful, not only as a noise machine, but also dressed in many of the costumes it more conventionally wore. Guitar solos was a kind of consolidation, inasmuch as many of the techniques were already known, like laying the guitar flat, using crocodile clips, using glass edges to play glissandi, resting objects on the strings or playing two-handed on the neck. Most important was the combination and breadth of his applications, which amounted to a recalibration of the instrument, an approach which far from breaking with the past included and commented on it. It was probably guitar solos more than any other record that inspired a generation of guitarists to experiment with preparations, including, well, here's a typical list: chopsticks, battery-operated fans, crocodile clips, palette knives, rubber tubes, wire wool, rulers, and assorted objets trouvés. Every guitarist devolves his or, very occasionally, her own palette and specialities. Frith himself is seldom seen without hair and paint brushes, chains, springs, small lids, rice, ball bearings, dusters and lengths of thread, which he runs through the strings in the manner of Radolescu's sound icons. And where Cage fixed his preparations to create a range of customised instruments, guitarists mostly use theirs as mobile, temporary sets of tools for use in constant, spontaneous rotation. (laughs) Here's Fred again, this time from a concert in 2006. Here's Henry Cow's bass guitarist John Greaves using clothes specs rather than metal clips to modify his instrument. Close pigs attached. It was a combination of chance encounters and happenstance. That led the guitarist Paolo Angeli to extend and eventually reconstruct his traditional Sardinian guitar. Citing Fred Frith as a seminal influence, along with the violinist John Rose, the cellist Tom Cora, and the instrument builder Harry Parch, Angeli allowed novelty and tradition to blend, not only in his highly adapted instrument, but also in the inspirations behind it. The two banks of sympathetic strings, for instance, and the foot-operated hammers that strike each primary string from beneath the bridge both draw knowingly on Baroque prototypes. Although we generally associate sympathetic strings with India and Iran, they're also common in Scandinavian folk instruments such as the nickel harper. Here's a nickel harper played by Thomas Roth. Sympathetic strings were also common in the Baroque period, for instance on the baritone, which had between 9 and 20 of them. Joseph Haydn composed at least 175 works for it. Here's a snatch of his trio 107. The baritone is played by Philip Pierlot. and the viola d'amour. It usually has six or seven played strings with the same number of sympathetic strings below. Here's a recent composition for this exquisite instrument, which like the bariton, is celebrating a new lease of life at the moment thanks mainly to the revival of period instruments by early music groups. On this recording, you'll hear not only the timbral effect of the sympathetic strings, but also occasionally the strings themselves as they are directly played. This is the final part of Solo for Viola d'Amour by George Friedrich Haas. It's played here by Garth Knox. It was seeing Tom Cora, Paolo Angeli says, that gave him the idea of presenting his instrument like a cello, that is to say, vertically resting on a spike and played primarily with a bow. Angeli also installed battery operated propellers, a staple of Keith Rowe's menagerie of modifiers. The result was a unique and extremely flexible instrument. This is Senza Parole, and yes, it's a real time recording with no overdubs. Back on the border now between technique and preparation, here's the American guitarist Eugene Chadbourne, who back in the 1970s began to use grapefruit-sized balloons to play with. Mutes have been applied to violins for centuries, but they didn't become common until the 1800s, and then mostly in pursuit of orchestral colour. The effect is subtle and narrow, mainly affecting volume. Here's Vivaldi's Il Riposo, composed somewhere in the early 1700s. A more interesting modification, evolved in pursuit of greater volume, was the Stroh Violin, patented in 1899 by John Matthias Augustus Stroh. Unlike the traditional violin, the Stroh was amplified through a resonating metal diaphragm that was attached to an aluminium horn, much like a phonograph horn, and based on one. Its prime directive was to improve clarity and volume, but inevitably it had a significant effect on timbre too. like its rarer relatives, strove mandolins, guitars, ukuleles and violas, the strove violin was tailored to the frequency limitations of the acoustic recording process. That said, by the 1920s, it was also commonly found in peer bands and dance orchestras, in a last-ditch attempt, according to Julian Pilling, the author of Fiddles with Horns, to prevent the saxophone from replacing the fiddle as the leader of the general dance. When Mauricio Cargill, 50 years later, chanced on an antique photograph of some Strohs in action, he was intrigued enough to investigate further. Experience told him that these metal horns could link the violin family, timbrely, to orchestral brass, and he was keen to probe that idea. Failing to find an original, he commissioned not just a violin, but a complete family of modified replicas to be made. When Astasha Strohs turned up a little later in Baghdad, Cargill was already working with his own and decided to stick with them. He used them only in this piece, 1898, for brass, horned violins, cellos, bass and children's choir. <laughs> Sometime in 1928, Harry Parch removed the fingerboard from an old cello and grafted it onto the body of a discarded viola, and then studded the neck with brads to mark out a 43-tone scale. This was the first of an orchestra of xenharmonic instruments he went on to invent or adapt over the next 40 years. The adapted viola, like Paolo Angeli's adapted Sardinian guitar, was played like a cello, upright and spiked to the floor. Here's Parch's setting of By the Waters of Babylon, written in August 1931. Since he only recorded the work later, augmented by other instruments, we'll listen to this perfectly plausible reconstruction of the original by an ensemble calling itself Parch. This is pretty much the way William Butler Yeats would have heard the work when Parch pitched up at the Abbey Theatre in Dublin and played it for him in 1934. straight also started to work on guitars and after many modifications arrived at the first adapted guitar in 1934 and then in 1945 the 10-string hawaiian type adapted guitar both of which were played with lead-weighted pyrex rods here's what the 10-string sounded like the British violinist and composer John Rose, who's been most prolific and ingenious in the breadth of his violin modifications. It would take the rest of this programme to cover them all, so I'll briefly summarise. We have the 19-string violin, the half-size megaphone violin, the aeolian violin, the tromba mariner, the double-piston triple-neck wheeling violin, the 16-string long-neck microtonal violin, the 10-string double violin, the trapezoidal five-string viola, the Madonna and Child, that's a violin nested inside a cello, the double-necked violin, the bicycle-powered double violin, the windmill violin, and various modified fiddles with metal and polystyrene resonators. Closely related to these were the 19-string cello and the whippelin. The whipperin was made from a disemboweled cello, with a hurdy gurdy mechanism attached that had fully interchangeable playing wheels—not just the standard version rimmed with bow hair, but wheels that had spikes, leather thongs, and rough serrations. If you hear echoes of Luigi Russolo's intono rumori in this snatch of whipperin, it's because they share the same basic sound-generating principle. was Brenda Hutchison playing a nine and a half foot metal pipe. Wind instruments are essentially just fixed lengths of pipe, so they can be made longer or shorter or their connecting parts can be diverted. Here's the trumpeter Bray Grimes, who's changed his valve slides about and replaced his mouthpiece with a soprano saxophone mouthpiece. This is wonderment for prepared trumpet. And here's a short trip around the outer fringes of the tuba. This is Michael Vogt playing with air, with a second bell, with a saxophone mouthpiece, singing and playing at the same time, flutter tonguing and tapping. However, the most common preparation for brass is the mute. Of ancient lineage, it's fitted into or over the bell to modify the timbre or the volume and even occasionally the pitch of an instrument. Mutes were probed most extensively in the world of jazz, perhaps because the expressive, almost human sounds they could make were too profane for most art world composers. Here's the legendary Cootie Williams, longtime trumpeter with the Duke Ellington Orchestra, playing Concerto for Cootie, specially written for him by the Duke to showcase his muting skills. <laughs> ellington's trombonist tricky sam nanton much imitated but never equaled for his talking style with the plunger mute that's essentially a rubber sink plunger with a hole and a nickel to get a bit of a buzz in it <laughs> And here's an exquisite muted orchestration by Gil Evans of Manuel de Falla's Will-o'-the-Wisp, recorded in 1960 on his Sketches of Spain LP. Miles Davis is playing the flugelhorn. el tiempo hasta la siguiente In the next program we'll look at vocal and percussion preparations and move on to unorthodox ways of playing the piano. I'm Chris Cutler. This has been probes.